Neurocentry. Welcome to the Neurocentry podcast about major trends in brain science and what can be done in policy with respect to all brainy matters, brain health, mental health, neurotechnology, neuroethics, brain capital and brain-derived technology. My name is Pavel Sviboda and I have the distinct pleasure today of welcoming on the podcast Professor Felice Jaka, who is Professor of Nutritional Psychology, Psychiatry and Director of Food and Mood Center at Deakin University in Australia. Elise is a founder and director of the uh, International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research. She has pioneered uh, some of the most impactful research in, in the fields. And she's also author of the book called Brain Changer on how food should be considered as the basis of our mental and brain health throughout our lives. Feliz, first of all, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I have this uh, feeling, correct me if I'm wrong, that somehow the impact of nutrition on brain and mental health was acknowledged much later than in other disciplines like uh, cancer or um, heart uh, disease. The field of nutritional psychiatry, uh, which you have uh, um, built over the years, uh, is also relatively new. Um, and uh, if you if you would agree with that, I would have a question uh, if um, uh, the essentials of the relationship between uh, food and brain and mental health have now been uh, established. Uh, we have seen a number of super interesting randomized control trials in recent years, starting with uh, the SMILES trial you had conducted your, yourself. Um, but how much of that body of, of knowledge uh, would you find actionable today? Mm, it's really it's a really interesting field and as you say it is quite recent relatively speaking in terms of you know scientifically um the first studies observational studies were published end of 2009 2010 um, including my phd study which was published in the american journal of psychiatry and two others that were also published in leading journals and it was just one of those synchronicity type things that three of us were sort of having this similar idea at the same time around the world. But the early work, um, and it's very, very extensive now, was built on observational data. So, you know, measuring what people eat um, at scale through large scale population studies, measuring mental health, looking at those associations statistically, of course, taking into account key factors that inf can influence both diet and, and mental health. And here we're really talking about the common mental disorders, depression and anxiety, which together form the largest chunk of that very, very large burden of disease that's um, associated with mental disorders across the world. And we, you know, take into account socioeconomic status, you know, education and income, um, other health behaviors, body weight. You know, many people think that maybe this link between what we eat and our mental and brain health exists by body weight, but we see over and over again that that's simply not the case. It's quite independent of body size um, and, you know, a whole range of other factors. And what we have seen from starting from that early point is a comprehensive and very consistent body of evidence from across the world. And so it doesn't matter if you're looking in Norway or Japan or China or Brazil or India or America or anywhere else, the quality of people's diets, and this means really 
you know, the amount of whole unprocessed foods they're taking in, plant foods and vegetables and, and uh, fruits, obviously, but things like whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, these types of things, healthful forms of protein, unprocessed meat, fish, healthful forms of, uh, you know, fats such as extra virgin olive oil, um, and very importantly, uh, uh, you know, a much smaller amount of ultra-processed foods. These types of diets are consistently associated with about a 30 to 35% reduction in the risk of developing um, depression uh, in particular. That's where most of the research lies. What's really key, I think, is that we see this right across the life course. So the meta-analysis level, in which there are many, we have um, very consistent data that mother's diets during pregnancy, for example, are, li are linked to children's um, emotional health outcomes, but also neurodevelopmental. Um, that uh, adolescence diets, and adolescence is the primary age of onset, they're in a dose response way linked to um, the, the diets that young people are eating. And then right up at the other end of life too, where diet quality predicts developing depression for the first time in old age. So that's the observational literature. We also have emerging um, evidence from the observational literature about some of the pathways by which this might be working. And one of the key ones is via the impact on of diet on this key region of the brain called the hippocampus, which is very important in learning and memory, but also in mental health. Um, and then more recently, we have several randomised control trials where uh, people, well, in, in two of the four trials, uh, people with moderate to severe clinical depression, so certainly in our SMILES trial, some of them were very ill and had been for a long time, um, an adjunctive meaning it wasn't, um, you know, instead of another form of treatment, but generally in addition to another form of treatment, an adjunctive dietary support program uh, delivered by a nutrition professional um, over a period of, um, you know, varying timescales, but our smile star did it over 12 weeks, compared to a social support condition, which we know is helpful for depression, was able to show a very, very profound uh, impact on depressive symptoms and economic evaluations show that this was a highly cost-effective approach to treating depression. Now, we can always do with more studies and there was certainly an enormous amount of work that's underway at the moment. Um, our group, the Food and Mood Centre, is um, unique in the world at this point in, in terms of its sole focus on nutritional psychiatry research. The work that we've done has now been reflected in, you know, more than 100 policy documents and certainly in clinical guidelines. But um, there is a growing understanding that nutrition is quite fundamental to mental and brain health. But it's been a long time coming because the field of psychiatry, unlike uh, other medical disciplines, has really... Um, been one where the brain and the body have been thought to be a bit separate and, and psychiatry as a discipline hasn't been that interested in what happened below the neck. And, of course, there's been a, you know, big pharmaceutical um, uh, component to psychiatry research, which is fine. Pharmaceuticals are very important, but it's meant that the focus has been often on things like neurons and neurotransmitters and things like this that really sit in the brain. Whereas more recently, we understand that um, things such as depression are really whole body disorders that involve many, many systems and mechanisms in the body, particularly the immune system, but also metabolic processes, 
gene expression, um, mitochondrial function, a whole range of different things, um, and the gut microbiome, of course. So um, this is where the field is now is to, you know, really starting to understand the mechanistic pathways by, by which diet influences mental and brain health. But as, as I say, this new knowledge is now starting to be reflected in clinical guidelines, which is really exciting. This is all thoroughly uh, impressive, but I want to pause um, for a moment on uh, the diet itself and how it is composed. Um, so how would you define a healthy diet for, for the purposes mm -hmm. of uh, the studies that you have uh, mentioned? Um, how rigorous does one have to be? You have you have mentioned some of the, the mm -hmm. categories of foods uh, that ought to be uh, eaten, uh, but again, how rigorous should one be? And are we in the affordable territory you, you did you did say that uh, the no economic dimension is uh, positive of um, ensuring that uh, this relationship between uh, food and mental health in particular is um, is emphasized um, but um, um, how can we uh, you know demonstrate uh, that in uh, in in practice well, with epidemiology to date, because it's just only, you know, just over a decade old, we've looked at healthy diet as it might be defined in any given country. So, you know, a Norwegian traditional diet is one that tends to be higher in um, whole dairy foods, fish, uh, cruciferous vegetables, you know, whole grain breads, these types of things. So that's like a Norwegian version. And then you've got maybe a Japanese version that's vegetables and seaweed and fish. And so they look different in different settings, but the, the, the fundamentals are uh, more plant foods um, and less processed food, ultra processed food in particular. Uh, in the clinical trials, they almost all used a, um, a some version of a Mediterranean-style diet. Now, here we're talking about a traditional Mediterranean diet, not an actual Mediterranean diet as it exists at the moment, which often seems to <laughs> consist of just pasta and pizza, but the traditional type um, that emphasises uh, seafood, olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, fermented foods, um, you know, different types and diversity of, of plant foods and greens, um, uh, you know, legumes and nuts and seeds. So this has been the foundation of the dietary recommendations that have been made. Now, people often ask about the affordability of these diets, and it's a really important point because that will vary enormously depending on the setting. So in outlier cases like um, the US and to a lesser extent, but still in some cases in the UK, um, whole foods, as in unprocessed foods, can be difficult to access and therefore there's some real barriers to getting them. The, the dietary approach that we took in our SMILES trial, the recommendations were really framed around um, being able to uh, support a diet that was affordable, very accessible, very easy to prepare for people who, you know, were living with a serious illness, um, very um, convenient. And so things like frozen vegetables, which are nutritionally fantastic, frozen fruits, similarly, uh, tinned fish, 
tinned and dried legumes, which are very affordable, very accessible. These were the types of recommendations that were made. And what we did with the SMILES trial was we did a very, very detailed cost evaluation of the diet that people were eating when they came into the study. Each and every item was costed, and then we costed the uh, the foods that made up the diet that we were recommending. And our diet was actually quite substantially cheaper. Um, so that was interesting for one. The economic evaluations that were done by health economists focused on what were the um, potential costs or benefits uh, or cost savings of the two approaches, the social support condition versus the dietary support condition. And they showed for those in the dietary support condition, there was roughly a two and a half thousand dollar Australian um, cost savings because people in the dietary condition, they lost less time out of role and they saw health practitioners less often. So suggesting that they were having a global benefit to their functioning. Uh, another trial that also did a, a formal economic evaluation also concluded this, this was highly, highly cost effective. Um, we've got um, a number of large scale trials, pragmatic trials and others underway in our centre. One has been completed and is under review at the moment where we've also included economic evaluation. So I think it's a really interesting point. But as I said, there will be other settings where a healthful diet can be um, maybe more expensive, but if you do incorporate things like frozen vegetables and tinned foods, then actually it can become very um, affordable. Perfect. I want to uh, get into uh, what should be done about all this body of knowledge momentarily, okay. uh, but I cannot resist uh, the temptation of asking you about uh, the relationship between uh, the gut and the brain, uh, because mm -hmm. there is so much uh, more evidence uh, emerging about a direct dialogue between uh, the gut uh, microbiota and the brain. One example is the research published uh, last year led by scientists of the uh, Institut Pasteur in, in Paris, uh, which showed that uh, hypothalamic neurons in an animal model uh, directly detect variations in bacterial activity uh, in mm. the gut and adapt appetite and uh, body uh, temperature. Uh, we know also that the gut is at the heart of the uh, immune system and uh, unhealthy mm. uh, diet leads to inflammation. Uh, including in the brain. So yep. how much uh, is all this emerging evidence? Uh, to what extent is it uh, already making inroads uh, in um, the work on new therapeutic approaches? Mm. I think it's a, it's a really interesting area. It's one of the things that sort of captured many people's imaginations because the, the sort of revolution in medical science around the microbiome, the human microbiome, has been akin to the revolution in physics when the small, ultra-small particles were discovered, you know, because we really didn't know much about what these microbes did and um, and the their increasing knowledge of their very, very tight involvement in virtually every single function of the body is, is really important, really fascinating. Obviously, we've co-evolved with them. They can't live without us. We can't live without them. It's not just the microbes that live in the gut, of course. There's microbes on the skin and in every orifice, in the lung, uh, oral microbes. We're all finding um, now that they very likely have pretty close bi-directional communication and communication with each other across the body. 
Diet seems to be a really fundamental aspect of um, what influences their composition, particularly in the gut. The primary role of the gut microbiome, of course, is to break down foods that the human enzymes can't break down, which is um, plant fibres and polyphenols in the main. Uh, and these are foods that are found in plant foods, uh, components that are found in plant foods, and we don't eat anywhere near enough of them in the West. Um, and their role in mental and brain health, I think, is is I think we're all pretty clear that it, 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 they play a role, they play an important role. We It's very complex, so we haven't delineated all the ways in which they might do that. But when we think about the, the fundamental mechanisms enrolled in, involved in, say, for example, depressive illness, so things like the stress response system, um, epigenetic mechanisms, um, the hippocampus and the, the proteins that lead to new neurons in the hippocampus, um, obviously the immune system, inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, mitochondrial function, um, tryptophan kynurinine pathways that influence central serotonin. Um, these are all um, influence quite profoundly in many cases by the microbes in the gut. We know that if you take stool from someone with a major depressive disorder or with a schizophrenia and you put it into a rodent, that you can induce the phenotype in the rodent and quite a number of the biochemical changes that are seen in that um, those disorders. We published a very large systematic literature review last year, a molecular psychiatry that looked across schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, looked at microbiome composition compared to healthy controls. Now, what we see is that um, generally there are differences between those with and without a mental disorder. But what we also saw was concordance across those three disorders such that there were consistencies that were um, aligned with some of the pathogenic aspects of those disorders. So decreases in uh, bacteria that produce anti-inflammatory molecules, um, increases and differences in uh, the bacteria that produce GABA, um, and then really interestingly, um, increase in lactic acid-producing bacteria. And, of course, we see lac excessive uh, lactic acid and um, in people with those three disorders in the blood, in the brain. So suggesting, and of course we don't know if it's cause or effect, but uh, based on so many different lines of evidence, it does suggest that the bacteria might play a role in the pathogenesis of these disorders in a way that can be observed across those three um, major illnesses. Um, the fact that diet is such an important predictor and influence of, of the, the gut, gut bacteria as well as other bacterias um, is a very, very important understanding. We can quite rapidly change, if not even the composition, but the function of bacteria by changing diet. But to my mind, if we zoom right out and we think about the industrialised food system, we know from the UN summit of 2021 that the industri our, our global industrialised food system costs the globe roughly $20 trillion a year, $20 trillion. Now, in comparison is, you know, the whole GDP of China is roughly $16 trillion a year. Now, $11 trillion of that is in terms of its health impact because of its impact on chronic diseases, which are now the leading cause of illness and early death around the world. Poor diet is the leading contributor to these chronic diseases. But also on environmental 
damage and the loss of biodiversity in the environment. So the industrialised food system and our practices, um, including farming, so, you know, pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, monocultures, intensive cropping, the use of antibiotics right the way through the, the, you know, livestock production. The global food system is um, the leading contributor to loss of biodiversity in the world. And so what we're seeing is, of course, that in loss of biodiversity in the environment is very clearly linked to loss of biodiversity in humans. And this loss of biodiversity in humans is being reflected in so many ways, including the rapid increase in the prevalence of uh, immune-mediated diseases, such as allergic diseases, asthma, eczema, food allergy, but also autoimmune conditions, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes. So disentangling um, the environmental impacts and the human impacts via the loss of biodiversity prompted by our global food system is really critical. And this is, as you know, we need to be looking um, at this macro level. So let's uh, maybe uh, jump into this, namely, what can we uh, do about uh, these matters? Um, and you have also co-authored uh, recently uh, with colleagues a Baker Institute uh, paper calling uh, for major changes to the food industry. And um, and you drew attention to um, how much impact um, um, processed foods um, have on our brain and mental health. Um, you have just said that uh, this impact is mediated through various uh, pathways. Um, but um, what can be done about this? I think some of the recommendations um, uh, included restrictions on advertising, uh, junk mm -hmm. food, uh, developing uh, food assistance programs to promote uh, diets rich in unprocessed uh, um, mm -hmm. whole foods, um, for front of package labeling of processed foods, et cetera, et cetera. Which of these um, approaches uh, would you find to be uh, the most uh, impactful? Huh? Because we are, we are, after all, talking uh, about uh, changing a certain way of uh, uh, approaching foods that has uh, become fairly uh, ingrained uh, in, especially in the Western world. Look, it's a massive, massive undertaking and it's going to really require quite a revolution because it needs to be um, approached from multiple um, points. Food policy, though, I think is central for governments to be able to form effective food policy to recognise the impact of chronic diseases that are arising from the global food system as it stands now and factor them into their forward planning, recognising the the potential benefit of taking action. And I think that that is really important um, to be framing it in those terms, that this is the, the incredible uh, amount of cost saving that could be made uh, both to the, the medical system, but more broadly to businesses to, I mean, if you think, if we just think about mental and brain health, the cost of the global economy, the cost to businesses in any given jurisdiction is just massive. It runs in the billions every year. The fact that uh, so many of the risk factors for mental disorders are very difficult to change. They're things like early life trauma and genetics and poverty and disadvantage. These are things that are really difficult. But 
Food is something that affects 100% of the population several times a day. It is something that arguably is modifiable. So the, the potential for both um, prevention as well as treatment is really profound. And so again, putting this in terms of what could be gained by policy change, I think is really important. I think one of the main things that needs to happen is, and I don't even know if this is possible, but some very strict rules around in any given government around limiting the activity, the lobbying, the power of the food industry behind the scenes, because something like 70 of the top largest companies in the world um, produce these ultra processed foods. And their power and the money behind that is arguably far greater than any nation state government. So strict conflict of interest rules around how uh, these companies might engage with governments would be wonderful uh, i you know i won't hold my breath though um certainly limiting advertising i think is a major one um looking at food subsidy systems and and you know this includes at you know uh, the macro level and how um industrial foods and industrial food production is subsidized um and making changes to that i think is another thing um things more locally like limiting or changing planning laws so that individual communities can uh, stop certain fast food purveyors setting up shop within a kilometre of schools, for example, school food programs, public health initiatives that really um, emphasise, and this includes front of pack labelling, you know, this is great, <laughs> this is not so great for your health. And then those actual direct subsidies and taxes. So we know that taxes on sugar sweetened beverages have been very effective in many parts of the world. Uh, we would obviously hope that those sorts of taxes are then redirected to subsidise, you know, uh, less processed foods. And um, that could be done in a way that is in, uh, beneficial to, to farmers. But I think, um, again, this whole field of agroecology, where it's not just about completely changing the way we farm, and I think that that's critical because we're looking at losing about 30% of the arable land across the globe over the next 100 years because of what we're doing to the land, the soil. But the opportunities for carbon capture and carbon offsets are there, but they must engage local landowners and and local farmers and involve local communities and have that input. So when you look at, for example, places like the US and the UK and Australia, they already have such a high penetration of these industrialised foods, such that roughly 60% of energy intake in these countries is coming from ultra-processed foods. And these are the foods that have a, a long list of ingredients. They're made originally from some sort of actual food, but then they're pulled apart and extruded and add, had things added to them so that they're no longer uh, actually really food, in my opinion, and many people's opinions. Um, but there's many countries in the world that have much stronger food cultures, and I'm thinking of countries, for example, around the Mediterranean Basin, where the penetration of these industrialised foods is far lower, maybe 10%, you know, and so actually doing real prevention by getting in there and trying to limit the, the intrusion of those uh, companies into those countries and preserving the food culture and modifying subsidies and, and taxation to try and, uh, you know, pull those levers 
prevention is going to be key. You know, I think that there's many governments that are looking at losing their their AAA credit rating, and it's because so many governments have been kicking the can down the road for generations and going, well, you know, uh, these industries support this many billions of dollars of economic activity in my country. I'm not going to touch that. But they're not linking the dots and going, but hang on, this is costing us this much money and this burden of illness, we could be reverting this much of it if we could actually improve the food intake at the population level. Because when it comes right down to it, telling individuals that they need to change the way they eat without changing that food environment that is explicitly designed to try and get them to eat more of these types of ultra-processed foods, it's just not going to happen. It's uh, maybe not going to happen, but at the same time, I think you are a great uh, believer in giving people uh, more uh, information. I uh, when I yeah. um, when I've um, um, read your book, uh, Brain Changer, I think this was pretty much based on this premise that uh, uh, when given more information, people will be better equipped, um, also to deal with misinformation, which is so much yeah. widespread uh, in in this uh, in this very field. Uh, but this takes me to uh, to the question of how much of um, um, this nutritional um, guidance can be really personalized um, in uh, mm-hmm. in real life. Meaning, um, and that starts really from um, the patients uh, suffering from depression that we talked about uh, at the beginning uh, to uh, prevention at scale that we have uh, just uh, explored. Um, I mean, our our diets are very complex and they are difficult to to engineer, aren't they? So, um, I mean, how much uh, can be done to offer people really personalized uh, guidance now and maybe in the future? Because uh, maybe you will you will tell me that this uh, requires uh, uh, you know a more elaborate uh, uh, database uh, systems, uh, which uh, would take a lot more into account in order to give uh, now people the types of recommendations that uh, I think they are waiting for. Look, I think, again, zooming right out, my my fundamental message would be that for decades we've focused on body weight and body size as the, the, the focus of dietary messages and public health messages. I think that that's been a really a failed um, endeavour It's stigmatising, but body weight is very complex and it's very much informed by, as I said, the environment, but also genetics and these types of things. What we see in our research over and over again is that if you tell people that this, what they're eating is going to affect their mental and brain health and their gut and they make it very concrete, very immediate, uh, then they respond much more quickly. It's around nurturing rather than around, you know, punishment, deprivation and weight loss. They're much more positive, much more effective messages in getting people to change their diet. What I would say too in regards to misinformation is that in many countries, particularly in the US, there's a lot of people whose whole focus is on making money out of things. And I mean, this is the whole focus of the the uh, the capitalist system, isn't it? You know, and there's been a lot of promotion and misinformation uh, on the basis of wanting to sell things. And one of the things that I think is um has been promoted that I don't think has really got the strongest evidence base behind it is this idea that there's different diets for different people. 
Now, it might be true that there might be a few things tweaking around the edges that are, for example, some people may, because of their own uh, genetics or because of their their microbiome genetics, they may metabolise things differently. And we do see that. And, I mean, a really good example of that is people living with schizophrenia. They seem to have inbuilt errors in lipid metabolism, in glucose metabolism, that who knows, it might come from that early life microbiome. Um, We don't know. But um, there may be some differences for some people. But I think those fundamental principles of um, a diet that's predominantly plant-based, it doesn't need to be vegetarian or vegan, but it should be full of plants and a diversity of plants because diversity of plants and and, uh, healthful foods equals diversity or biodiversity of the the microbes, which is very clearly associated with better health outcomes, including in cancer, which I think is something that's of great interest to many. Um, Avoiding ultra-processed foods. And then more recently, I think we're starting to understand that fermented foods might be particularly helpful in mental and brain science, and we've just done a very cool trial in this area. Um, I think that the fundamental principles are pretty much the same for everyone. There might be the ability to tweak things around the edges, but, you know, do I think that we'll get to a point where I'll say to person X, well, you should be eating broccoli and person Y, you should be eating cauliflower if you want to cure your depression? Absolutely not. I think that that's um, very unlikely to be supported by the, the evidence. Whether we can use things like the microbes to understand um, and other risk factors and these risk algorithms that we generate from large data sets to understand who would be a good candidate for a dietary intervention or potentially in the future a biotherapeutic based on microbes or even a faecal transplant, that is probably more likely. We'll be able to say, well, look, this person's already got a good diet and these risk factors are okay, so whatever's ailing them is unlikely to be particularly responsive to a dietary or gut-focused intervention, whereas this person has this biomarker profile, this risk factor profile, they will be a great candidate for those sorts of interventions. So that's the personalization that I think we may be able to get to. Okay, wonderful. Um, you've mentioned before that uh, that you see progress with respect to how dietary approaches are reflected in clinical practice guidelines. I don't know if you if you uh, were referring mostly to Australia or are you doing yes. some more extensive uh, mapping well, subject? Uh, I think excitingly, although um, it's a bit frustrating, really, that, you know, I'd like to see change, of course, much more rapidly. But um, in Australia in 2020, the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatry updated their clinical practice guidelines for the treatment of mood disorders, so depression and, uh, and bipolar disorder. And they, for the first time anywhere, placed what is essentially lifestyle medicine as the foundation of treatment. So achieving a healthy diet, more movement, uh, sleep hygiene, improving sleep and substancization as the fundamental principles. And they called them foundational and they called them essentially non-negotiable. So these should be addressed as the foundation of any other treatment that comes on top of that. Now, that's great. And I think that um, they should absolutely be applauded. 
There, of course, though, we have a translation gap because most medical practitioners are not trained in nutrition or exercise physiology. We're at the Food and Mood Centre. We've developed accredited training with the Royal Australian New Zealand College to try and bridge that gap. That's available for medical professionals around the world. We also established in 2019 a global task force to develop um, the first set of clinical guidelines for the application of lifestyle-based care in in mental health treatment. It took three years, more than 80,000 words, very rigorous evaluation of the research evidence and a set of recommendations that came out of that that could be applied in any setting, any jurisdiction. So they were published last year um, along, it was a task force with the World Societies of Biological Psychiatry, WFSBP. Um, So they're out there as well, which is really useful for people wanting to understand where is the evidence and how can it be applied. Um, But we do hope that as the research in nutritional psychiatry advances because it is a a young field, so there's still much to do in terms of refining our evidence and knowledge, that that will be integrated into clinical guidelines. And I'm, I'm heartened by... For example, I was invited to give a keynote at the Royal College of Psychiatry uh, International Conference in Liverpool last month. Now, that's traditionally been a pretty conservative uh, organisation, but the fact that they were very keen to hear about this and there was a lot of interest in enthusiasm for it uh, is really encouraging. So I think that this will happen. One of the things we've done or something that I've been very focused on for a decade now is um, science communication because, as you pointed out, I have really uh, put a big emphasis on giving people the knowledge because if people know that this is something that they can do for themselves, it does seem to prompt action and change, which is very positive, but it also means that they are more likely, we would hope, uh, these are people out in the general population, to vote with their wallet at the supermarket, to ask their clinicians for support with their dietary intake, and to potentially even vote with their votes for people uh, and organisations and parties that are going to actually enact proper food policy to improve the food environment. Because generally, industry and government do not change until the people ask for it, (laughs) unfortunately. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Felice. Uh, We have to uh, end there, but I cannot resist... um the temptation of uh, asking you at the end uh, what it is that you're working on right now and uh, what uh, would you like to uh, accomplish in the in the course of the next uh, uh, 12 months this is such a dynamically growing uh, field with uh, uh, enormous uh, importance for uh, for all of us um, that um, you know we'll be watching eagerly um, what comes out of your your research. But if you could uh, uh, reveal a, a small secret or two, that would be fantastic. <laughs> we have we had a lot of studies that were halted during COVID because we had I think the longest lockdown in anywhere in the world where we were in Victoria and Australia. So we're going to have the results of several really really intriguing clinical trials published over the next six months or so. One of those looks at fermented dairy versus a placebo fermented dairy and its impact on the brain measured by brain scans and a whole lot of other things. Uh, Another looks at um, ultra-processed foods versus whole foods and its impact on the gut microbiome. 
Um, we have a very, very important trial that's under review at Nature Medicine at the moment. That's the first non-inferiority trial to actually evaluate is diet and exercise support at least as effective in the real world as gold standard psychotherapy for people with elevated psychological distress. We're also doing a big national trial looking at that. So these are these real-world effectiveness trials. Um, and we have many, many other studies underway. One of the things uh, we published recently was the first feasibility study of faecal transplants for people with major depressive disorder. We're trying to get funding for a fully-powered trial. And then finally, we're hoping to get funding for the very large-scale definitive gold standard dietary intervention that uses a proper placebo diet, which is much more difficult than you might imagine. <laughs> so these are all the things that are on our radar. But um, if you look at the Food and Mood Centre website, there's a lot of really cool information there. Wonderful. This is the place to uh, to look into that. Um, Felice, thank you so much for, for joining uh, the podcast today. And uh, we'll be watching uh, with uh, uh, enormous interest uh, what comes out of uh, your research in, in the coming period. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you.